You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Let's talk about the news. And sometimes the news comes to us through local journalists who engage in the type of roll-up-your-sleeves investigative journalism that gets to the truth. And throughout the coronavirus, we've had too many people in government, in bureaucracy, lie to us, not tell us the truth, for the purpose of expanding their own authority and power and influence over the daily choices we make in our lives. Today's top story comes from Fox 17 Nashville, and it exposes the mayor of Nashville and their administration for trying to hide the fact that there wasn't really substantial community spread going on at the bars. That's right, there's a series of emails in the June 30th time frame where the mayor of Nashville and his administration, they're all trying to figure out how to conceal the fact that they don't really have a problem at the bars and honky-tonks on Lower Broadway in Nashville. Instead, construction sites were a major area of spread in Nashville, and nursing homes were really problematic for them. But at one point, they only had like 22 cases in bars. Then they only had about 80 cases in bars. And so you see this email back and forth where they're saying, well, gee, reporters are asking us for the numbers of positive cases from Lower Broadway, and it's a low number, so what should we do about that? And you see one of the senior members of the mayor's team say that it's not for public consumption, that they don't want to release a specific number, because if that number looks too low, then they won't be able to you know, continue to exercise their authority to keep these bars and honky-tonks shut down. I will confess, I've spent my fair share of time in the music halls of Nashville, Tennessee. I very much enjoy it. Folks from all over come. And, you know, it may be the case that these never were and never were going to be substantial areas of spread. But, you know, traveling and interacting and, you know, being with your fellow human beings is something that generates commerce and activity. And it's not just for people's joy or desire to listen to music. Folks make their livelihoods at these places. These businesses have to be open for people to be able to pay their rent and meet their obligations and feed their families. And so these decisions that government makes in the absence of real evidence uh, can become problematic. Just yesterday, I was with Governor DeSantis as we were surveying the damage from Hurricane Sally, and I could tell in our conversation how much the negative impact and disruption on people's lives really affected him as a consequence of these lockdowns. And while in Florida, we took a lighter approach, we didn't take the toughest, meanest, most aggressive lockdown approach. Uh, you know, we now see that we've basically gone through our wave, our positivity rate is down in the low single digits. And I don't know that history is going to judge these lockdowns all that favorably when you look at the cascading negative consequences. So in Florida, I suspect that we're going to be opening up even more, that people are going to be able to go listen to music, go to a local watering hole, uh, eat at a restaurant without the restrictions that we've seen regarding capacity, and that we will be just fine. We will be better than we've been when we impair the ability of people to make, an, make a life, 
earn a living and succeed as Americans. And so uh, I look forward to those reforms coming to Florida to loosen up a little bit. And I think the folks in Tennessee and California and Michigan and everywhere else where they're trying to clamp down on their citizens could take a lesson from what's going to happen in the Sunshine State. The ethics of fashion often get called into question, and fast fashion is something that I think we need to be on the lookout for. When you go to the store and you spend, you know, four, six, eight, twelve dollars on a shirt or a dress, you have to know that the cost of production is pretty damn low if they're able to sell that in retail for that low of a price. And the way they're able to keep the cost low in many places is by utilizing forced labor, oftentimes in China. And so if we really want to be America first in our hearts, we should be more America first in our shopping habits. Americans should not be so quick to tolerate fast fashion that we know is the consequence of someone being enslaved in many cases and you know tied to a sewing machine and forced to work oftentimes in child labor camps. Channel News Asia is reporting an Australian study that draws a bead on some of the partners that engage in this unethical fast fashion, one of which is H&M. And by the way, you know who it is. It's the Forever 21s, it's the Express, you know, at times like Banana Republic, but H&M uh, they were highlighted as having relationships with a uh, Shengshua mill, and that mill was identified in this Australian study as having a particularly egregious human rights record. H&M puts out a statement that while they don't believe they have any direct relationships with any of these mills, they may have some indirect relationships with some of these Chinese mills, and so you see them take some intermediate action to remove themselves from this particular partner. China's reaction is particularly interesting. They say that when Australia or the United States or any other Western country criticizes the enslavement of their people to make clothes, that we are bullying China. Give me a break. China has an economic model that bullies its own people, that steals from the world, that then tries to replace and sub supplant those who want to employ their own hardworking citizens, but without the type of awful environmental conditions and human rights conditions that we see in China. Here's my hot take. We should have a border adjustment tax against Chinese goods where we know those goods were made as a result of horrible human rights, horrible environmental standards, or anything else that would not adhere to our American values and our sense of humanity. How is it okay for these Chinese to go and, you know, pollute the skies in Shanghai, destroy our earth, and then come buy penthouses in Manhattan? How is it okay for us to drive jobs offshore to China only to know that people are going to be in worse conditions, that our earth is going to be cared for less? So I think we need to get a lot tougher with China on trade. The president has been transformational in his confrontation uh, with China, a confrontation that I think was long overdue and that will need to continue. But if President Trump is not reelected, we will go back to simping for China, 
to the chimerica dream that the elites tell us about, which is actually a nightmare for working class people and really a nightmare for the Chinese people who are exploited as a consequence. So good to see H&M take some small step towards more humane business practices. I think there's a lot more that needs to change in the fast fashion world. And if we had a border adjustment tax against Chinese goods that were made unethically, I think we would be a stronger country and we would be in a better position to confront our true competitor for dominance in the 21st century. The 1619 Project, nurtured by the New York Times, is an effort to have Americans believe that our country is fundamentally racist and flawed and that the slavery that occurred at the beginning of America is not something we could ever divorce ourselves from, that we can never be a more perfect union, that we are just intractably and inexcusably and forever linked to the slavery history of our past. I believe we can be better than our past. I believe that throughout human history, we have tried to understand each other better, treat each other better, build societies that are stronger and more diverse and more loving and ultimately more equal. But the way we achieve that greater equality is not by trying to put any one group of people above another. It's by saying, gosh, you know, beneath our, our, the dermis of our skin, we're all the same. We want to have better schools, good roads, clean environment. We want a safe country. And most importantly, we want every American to have the opportunity to succeed. I believe that success in America is tied and linked to our love of country, to our understanding of our founding, because only when we understand how great and special and unique America is, do we have the opportunity to really, I think, motivate the country to its highest potential. You know, that's what our greatest leaders have done. When we've tackled medical challenges, when we've put a man on the moon, when we've defeated the Nazis, we've rallied together under the banner of American values, not in critique of American values. President Trump understands this. He understands that this is a special country worthy of even more love than any of us could ever muster for her. And so President Trump signed an executive order countering the 1619 project with the 1776 project. And this will be a commission of people who will come together to infuse our education system with more patriotism, with more of an understanding of our nation's founding values. And I think that projects to just a, a richer and more prosperous people because we will be more engaged in the type of activity that I think honors the traditions of our country and their traditions that we should be proud of. We believed in religious liberty and tolerance. Uh, we believed that the government, the king, should not have such excessive power over us, that our this isn't going to be a strong country because our government is strong and our people are weak. We'll be strong because our people are robust in their rights and in their powers and in their commerce. And the government really is just there to vanguard our rights, not to tell us what to do or cause us to be more addicted to government. President Trump announced this. Let's take a listen. The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story 
with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. There is no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. This project rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. Nothing could be further from the truth. America's founding set in motion the unstoppable chain of events that abolished slavery, secured civil rights, defeated communism and fascism, and built the most fair, equal, and prosperous nation in human history. Today, I'm also pleased to announce that I will soon sign an executive order establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education. It will be called the 1776 Commission. It will encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding. Saturday Night Live is coming back with a limited audience at Rockefeller Center. They'll begin on October 2nd and begin with five live shows. The big news they're announcing is that Jim Carrey will be playing Joe Biden in the upcoming season. Now, I know Jim Carrey. The movie The Truman Show starring uh, Jim Carrey was filmed in my house in Seaside, Florida back in the mid-90s and uh, got the chance to meet him and interact with him as a 15-year-old kid. And Jim Carrey then made some more movies and I got elected to the state legislature and then Congress. And it appears that uh, Jim Carrey is no longer a fan of mine. He does these kind of bizarre, somewhat abstract paintings of people he doesn't like. And I got one. And in the uh, commentary of the painting offered by uh, its author, uh, Jim Carrey, he said that I have the hair of Conway Twitty, which, frankly, I did not take as that much of an insult. I thought Conway Twitty had great hair. Now, the painting that Jim Carrey made of me, not the most flattering description that I've ever uh, encountered. However, he'll be on Saturday Night Live playing Joe Biden. He is a, a funny and interesting creative guy. I think he's somewhat tortured in his own mind. Maybe after he made that movie, Eternal Sunshine of the... What was it? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I don't know. Maybe after he made that movie with Kate Winslet about how the mind goes crazy, uh, he became a little bit different. But we wish Saturday Night Live would be a little funnier. Back to the days of like Will Ferrell, Norm MacDonald, Sherry O'Terry. That was probably the golden era of Saturday Night Live. It's become a little more mean-spirited, but I'll probably check it out. Google and other big tech representatives faced off with senators in the antitrust subcommittee. Listen to this exchange with Senator Hawley. Do I understand it now that you have a content moderation requirement in order to access Google's ad platforms? Is that right? Is that, is that your testimony? No, uh, because the Federalists had it. They didn't moderate their content section. And what you're saying is they you require them now to engage in moderation in order to have access to your platforms. Is that right? You know, our, our ads policy, our ads policy is that our ads will not show up against harmful, offensive content. 
that, that that's the requirement. If they want to, to to show our ads next to their content, then that content can't be harmful or offensive. So in other words, they have to moderate it. As Senator Lee pointed out, it's extraordinary market power that would enable you to do something like this, to basically call the tune for a, a small independent publisher's construction of their site, uh, to, to design moderation policies for third-party content that they don't monitor or use, and, and yet you are able to do this and to force them to adopt these sorts of policies or effectively cut off their revenue stream. That's extraordinary. Senator Cruz was also aggressive in his questioning. Take a listen. How many websites, how many media outlets has Google used its market position and market power on ads to force them to take down or change their comment page? How, how frequently has what happened to the Federalist happened to others? I, I would have to get back to you, uh, Senator, with that answer, and I'm happy to get back to you with that answer. I would point out, though, that we 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 do receive complaints on either side of the aisle on this issue. Uh, we've pulled down videos on The Daily Show on um, uh, on uh, last week tonight and Democracy Now! and have received complaints from those sites. So we operate a wide platform. The wide platform has more views that have probably ever been expressed in human history in one platform. And we get complaints from both sides uh, when we use our policies, again, clearly stated policies, to pull down content. So, Mr. Harrison, I'm going to follow up with you in writing and ask you for that information. And you just represented to this committee that Google will provide that information. I've asked you for that information before, and Google has stonewalled and refused to give an answer. So I'm hopeful that your testimony here will be followed up on by, by some, some modicum of, of transparency. We've now seen major hearings in the House and the Senate focusing on antitrust issues and the anti-competitive practices of big tech. It's time to take action. Hopefully more to come. Does speaking English spread more coronavirus than speaking other languages? That is the question posed by Alison Escalante in Forbes. And the argument is that the consequence of our aerosol spreading of particles matched with particular consonants could actually lead to more projection of the type of virus-filled droplets uh, that seem to move this virus uh, without having to touch someone, but in fact through the air. So we all understand that it's the aspirated uh, particles of water that one would see maybe come out of the mouth that spreads coronavirus. And you know the article has somewhat somewhat of a comical image of uh, thinking about the professors in your high school or college classes who would speak loudly and you could always kind of see the droplets coming out of their mouth. You never wanted to sit in the front row if you had a loud talking professor uh, with, the, with the risk of being bathed by them without consent. Uh, but there are particular consonants in the English language, the P, the T, the K. And if you think about it, if you say words with that hard P, T, or K, uh, the argument scientifically is that they have a greater likelihood of being aspirated with this type of water that could impact another person. So I don't know. English has always been good to me, but I sure hope that it doesn't result in the greater spreading of coronavirus. Check out the Forbes article. Big Ten football will return in October and Oddly, the Big Ten is taking credit for this when it seems it's largely the consequence of pressure. As the ACC and uh, the Pac-12 and the SEC have engaged in uh, some competition, uh, 
without the explosive, you know, outbursts of the virus that would be catastrophic to the sport. I think that pressure has grown on the Big Ten from their boosters and donors, from their member institutions, and they've announced protocols through their website, uh, including study, testing, monitoring, research, a chief information officer for COVID, and communications. And while certainly, you know, we've seen a challenge at LSU with a bit of an outbreak, while we saw at Florida State some players and coaches have some disagreement about the nature of the protocols, I think it's a good thing to have more conferences participating and innovating and coming up with different ways to treat the virus. Uh, the ACC, in response to the protocols from the Big Ten, came out and said that they were confident that their uh, that their approach and that their testing regime was adequate. It appears the Big Ten has a bit of a more a robust and frequent screening process, but I actually look forward to seeing which conference cracks the code here and comes up with a system that might work. And you never know what we might learn from athletics from as society at large. I mean, you look at the NBA bubble, that's largely been a success. Major League Baseball seems to be following suit for their playoff strategy. But with college football and student-athletes, there's always unique sensitivities because these are amateurs and not professionals. You've always got to allow for the opt-out, but you've also got to allow for the opt-in for players who want to engage in the sport, for institutions that want to ensure that they make that opportunity available to their student-athletes. So I'm glad to see the Big Ten come around. I don't know that they should be patting themselves on the back. I think this is largely a consequence of the pressure put on the conference by the people, by the athletes, and by the universities. Thanks so much for listening to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Hope you enjoy the show. Hope you leave a five-star rating. Put in a review. Let us know what you'd like to hear. And join us next week for more Hot Takes. Hot Takes.